This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Zycam. Around this time of year, I always get hit with a nasty cold. It complicates life because usually it's like the week before Christmas, which isn't fun. And then when you run a podcast and you have a head cold, that's hard to do. You sound all nasally and gross. This winter, trust Zycam to knock out a cold the first sneeze of the season. Other cold medicines only mask symptoms, but Zycam is clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at the first sign. Not only is Zycam cold remedy safe and effective, but the nasal swabs are zinc-free, homeopathic, and allow for a gentle application of the nasal passages. You can find Zycam cold remedy products at all all major retailers, including Amazon, Walmart, and Target. Visit Zycam.com slash manliness to receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. That's Zycam.com slash manliness. Receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Do you feel restless? You sometimes wonder who you are, what life's all about, and where you're headed. Do you go after goals and relationships thinking that once you obtain them, you'll finally be happy, only to feel let down again and again? Well, over 1,500 years ago, Catholic bishop, philosopher, and theologian Augustine of Hippo had those same feelings of angst and wrote down his thoughts on how to deal with them in his famous book, The Confessions. Subsequent seekers and philosophers have been influenced by his words right up until the present day. My guest today has written a book about Augustine's ancient insights and the nature of restlessness and how these insights had a profound impact on Western philosophy, particularly among the existentialists of the 20th century. His name is James K. A. Smith. He's a professor of philosophy and theology, and his book is On the Road with St. Augustine, a real-world spirituality for restless hearts. We begin our show discussing Augustine's biography and his oft-overlooked influence on existential philosophers like Heidegger, Sartre, and Camus. We then unpack how Augustine was something of an existentialist himself, and yet crucially deviated from modern existentialists in his ideas, and compare and contrast his view and their viewpoints on the way in which life is a journey, how someone can find their true self, what it means to be free, and how to deal with restless ambition. Lots of interesting insights about life's big questions in this episode. After it's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Augustine. James K.A. Smith, welcome back to the show. Oh, it's great to be back with you. So we had you on a few years ago to talk about your book, um, about Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, and you know his idea of why there's so much existential angst in modernity. Uh, you got a new book out, though, called On the Road with St. Augustine, A Real-World Spirituality for Restless Hearts. And I feel like this is sort of like a sequel to that, or it's like the antidote to restlessness. Um, but before we get to um, St. Augustine's insights about how to deal with existential angst in the 21st century. Um, let's know a little bit. Let's find out a little bit about our travel companion here. Who was St. Augustine for those who aren't familiar with him? Why are we still talking about him today in the 21st century? Yeah, the, the thumbnail sketch is, so Augustine was an ancient thinker and theologian and bishop who lived in the late 300s and early 400s. So latter stages of the Roman Empire and and very much embroiled in in some of those dynamics. However, he was from North Africa. He was from what would be today contemporary Algeria. His father was Roman and pagan. His mother was African and Christian. So you could say he was sort of, he, he was familiar with a bicultural, even kind of biracial experience. And because he was at the, at this time, North Africa was sort of like the outer edge of the Roman empire. So he, he knows something about the experience of being on the margins, but also aspiring to be in the center. And so he's probably most famous for his work, The Confessions, which is still 
assigned in universities around the world and is often described as one of the first memoirs of the West. And yeah, he continues to fascinate. I was in a conversation in D.C. about the book a couple months ago with Elizabeth Brunig from the Washington Post. And she said, you know, who who else from the fourth century still has haters like Augustine does? So he's he's not an uncontroversial figure, but he continues to capture imagination and, and went on to become what we call one of the doctors of the church, probably after Jesus and the Apostle Paul, probably one of the most significant influencers of Western Christianity, and yet was also read by philosophers throughout the centuries, including the 20th century in particular. Well, let's talk about that. So, I mean, obviously, confessions had a profound influence on believing Christians because it's about Augustine's conversion. But as you note, and you talk about throughout this book, On the Road with St. Augustine, Augustine had a big influence on these continental, existential, often atheistic philosophers of the 20th century. We're talking Sartre, Camus, Heidegger. Who, I mean, for, for those who are familiar with these guys, who were these guys in big strokes? And then how did Augustine influence them? Yeah, so that's that's a great question, because in some ways, these figures will not be familiar to folks sort of every day today, now in the early 21st century. And yet, my contention is that we have actually all drank from their wells, even if we didn't realize it. Because what what happens in the middle of the 20th, 20th century, sort of germinating from Germany and France just before World War II and after World War II, is this movement that, that came to be described as existentialism. And these philosophers like Martin Heidegger and Jean-Paul Sartre were, were influential, and writers like Albert Camus and so on. And what they were grappling with was what we now talk about in terms of authenticity. So there was this, this sort of new sense of the burden of selfhood. There was this sense that if we were going to make meaning and find meaningful lives, we had to like answer this call and be resolute and sort of, you know, go, we had to find ourselves would have been the language, the way it trickled down into movies and cinema and magazines and things like that. So in many ways, I think in the early 21st century, we are still heirs to this existential project of finding ourselves, this quest for authenticity. And yet what's really intriguing for me as a philosopher is when you dig down below the surface, when you when you scratch below the surface of what Heidegger and Camus and these folks were saying, it turns out that the common influence was this fourth century African theologian named Augustine. So that they all had very, very direct encounters with Augustine's thought. And in some ways that was also precipitated by folks like Blaise Pascal and Soren Kierkegaard, who also are kind of progenitors of this existentialist tradition that also grappled with this Augustinian inheritance. So what what turns out to be the case is Augustine is kind of the first existentialist. And, and that's why it's not a mistake that he writes a book like The Confessions, where he's kind of peering inside himself, trying to figure out who he is and what he's about and what he's called to and what he loves. And yeah, he's trying to find himself. And it and it turns out that's a very ancient quest. And yet I think it's one that's maybe even more ubiquitous in our late modern era. Yeah. So, I mean, as you said, we've drunk from this. We're permeated in this existential philosophy. If you've ever seen an Instagram meme about making your own meaning, finding your true values, yeah. finding your true north, 
those are those are the existentialists right there. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the kind of everyday translation of this existentialist impulse to find oneself to become who you were called to be. So Augustine, I've I've always called him Augustine, but I, I guess it's Augustine. Yeah, no, the, it, it goes it goes either. It goes way. either I, way. I, I don't. I won't judge. Okay, no, it's okay. <laughs> you can judge here. No, so Augustine, I'm going to call him Augustine. Okay. In in his Confessions, he refers to life as a journey on a road, yeah. and that's another modern thing we do. Yes. Life's a journey on. You got to hit the road. Um, there's road movies. We can talk about that, but as Augustine points out in the book, and you point out, being on the road all the time can beat you down. It makes you feel restless. And you say it, being on the road and thinking life as a journey on a road makes us feel restless in two ways. What, what are those ways? Yeah, so I, I think you're right that th- this is another way in which we've inherited this kind of existentialist thread is everybody's on a journey, right? So every, that's a very, very common language for what we think spirituality could mean in a secular age is, well, I'm on the road, I'm looking, I'm searching, I'm journeying. We might even call it a pilgrimage or something like that. And Augustine says, yeah, that's that's true. Like that's true to the human condition, he would say. He does think the nature of the human condition is that you are sort of on the way. You, you can't not be chasing something. You can't not be looking to arrive somewhere. But there's the two kinds of restlessness are, there's one kind of restlessness that stems from not knowing where home is, right? So you're, that's the kind of, that's the restlessness of Gatsby. That's the restlessness of Kerouac's on the road. Because what happens there is, all right, we gotta be moving, we gotta be looking, we gotta be searching, we gotta hit the road. And, and the restlessness stems from the fact of, maybe not knowing where you're supposed to get to or getting to what you thought was the destination and say, oh, we made it. We've arrived. This is going to be happiness. This is going to be meaning only to realize that that evaporates. That's why I always think of Gatsby in this return, right? Where you get to what you think is everything you've hoped for and you've got this fantastic mansion and the great estate, but there's still that green blinking beacon on the other side of the bay. And all of a sudden now you want something else and you think, oh, happiness must be over there. That That's the kind of restlessness that's just utterly exhausting and devours us and 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 is despairing in a sense. There is still another kind of restlessness that Augustine is honest about. And I guess this is what I appreciate. I, I, I share Augustine's faith as a Christian and but I don't think that that insulates me from restlessness. It's it's uh, now it's the kind of restlessness that stems from I I know where home is. Every day I pray thy kingdom come, but it's not here and I, I'm saying, how long, O Lord? And it's that dynamic of a kind of sanctified impatience and the, the difficulty, the veil of tears that we are still journeying on, even if we have a compass, even if we know where home is, even if we know who true north is, that doesn't mean that there aren't still burdens of the journey that come with their own restlessness, if, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. And I think everyone's experienced those first two types of restlessness, like the first type where you don't know where home is. So when you're laying in bed at night and you're like, what am I doing with my life? Yeah. Where am I, what am I supposed to be doing? And then the second kind of restlessness is like, once you achieve that big goal and you're like, well, that was underwhelming. Yes. That was yes. incredibly underwhelming. Yes. And for Augustine, what Augustine would just point out is 
because we are we're we're talking about what really are fundamentally kind of spiritual realities, right? And what Augustine would say is, so he's a bishop, he's a preacher, he's a Christian, and he'll say, even if I sort of know who God is and what to hope for, that doesn't mean that I don't still experience those kinds of disappointments and the disorientation that comes from thinking I could have settled somewhere and realizing that doesn't work. And and I think that's why I appreciate his kind of realism in facing up to that. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a tendency for some Christians when they explain hardship in life, well, it's, well it'll all work out in the next life. And sort of, yeah. it's, it's kind of, whenever you hear like, that's kind of a cop-out, right? I mean, yes. it still sucks yes. right now. But, August- exactly. but Augustine says, yeah, it does suck, but you got to keep, yes. it'll, it'll, yes. it'll happen. And I'm, I'm not immune to basically falling for the trap of pretty things as if they could make me happy. Do you know what I mean? Or falling for the right. trap that accomplishment could make me happy. And Augustine says, well, that's always a fraught and fragile prospect because you can always lose. <laughs> and so what does it look like to grapple with that? Well, let's go back to these existential philosophers because as you said, they they got this idea from Augustine or they were influenced by Augustine, this idea. Yeah. What was their response to these, this, these restlessness that people feel just for being him? How did they respond to that? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. So there's, there's a few different ways. I, I don't know how patient your listeners are, <laughs> They're but patient. I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay, great. Cause so, so Martin Heidegger, who's kind of the, in a way, the sort of granddaddy of this movement, his, his response is to say, he kind of, inherits from Augustine this sense that we have to answer a call, that we are, you know, on the road to somewhere, that we need to find ourselves. But he balks from specifying that. And he says, at the end of the day, you have to sort of decide what you are called to be. So you, if, if I'm called to something, it's actually me calling to myself. And so it's a little bit like a very heavy German philosophical version of you do you, which means the burden is on me to kind of make myself. And I think that comes with its own kind of exhaustion and paralysis almost. And I, I think our culture experiences that. If, if answering the call of who I'm to be is really entirely and only up to me, I am not sure I trust myself to do that. Or what if I got to go on? So there's, there's a kind of, I think, angst that comes from that burden. Someone like Camus, Camus was, was as Augustinian as you could get without God. In other words, he, he kind of recognized everything that Augustine was saying about the world. But then he said, but I don't, I can't believe it. <laughs> and so what he would say is, that's why he faces up to what he calls the absurd. How, how do we, if, if the world is calling me to all these things, but they are impossible, how do I nonetheless make a life in spite of that? And, and which is why he thinks the greatest philosophical question is suicide. The, the, someone like Kerouac is, I think, maybe even more germane than people realize, even if they've never read his novel On the Road. Because for Kerouac, what you do is you just embrace this philosophy that says the road is life, right? So you don't you don't actually think you can arrive anywhere or you don't know where home is. And so you just embrace this philosophy that says, oh, it's all about the journey. It's all about the road, which I think works for a while until you're kind of a puddle of exhaustion and despair in the middle of that road. And you're wondering, can't I get home? <laughs> like, can't somebody welcome me home? And Augustine would say that 
voice, that hunger in you that keeps hoping that there's a home and someone to welcome you. Augustine would say that's an inbuilt hunger. And what you need to do is open yourself up to entertaining the possibility that it could be true and that it's actually God who's making that home to welcome you into. No, yeah. Camus also had that idea that like the road is home too with his myth of Sisyphus, right? Where, yes. You know, Sisyphus, yes. you know, for those who aren't familiar, it's this idea like Sisyphus pushes the boulder up and then he rolls back down. He has to keep pushing it up for eternity. And at a certain point, Sisyphus like enjoys it. Like, I'm just going to love this. This is absurd. I'm going to love it. Yes. That's how, that's how you deal yes. with the problem of, of this restlessness and anxiety of modern life. Exactly. And, and, you know, I, 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 I absolutely love Camus. I mean, he's, he's just one of my favorite writers and I guess I just appreciate his honesty because I don't, I don't want to make this too loaded, but I would think if I was with Camus and I couldn't entertain the possibility of a grace from a God from beyond, that would probably be about the best I could come up with. And the remarkable thing about Camus is he still thought he was called to be a kind of saint in the face of that. So you mean like he still forged a life of moral concern and so on and so forth, but he thought at the end of the day, it was all kind of absurd. And that's, that's kind of sad and heartbreaking uh, to me, only because I guess I can imagine the possibility otherwise. But I, I guess I also admire Camus for facing up to what he thought was the situation he found himself in. All right, so the existentialists say that life is lived on the road. It's a journey. But either you yourself choose where it is going, or the journey is all there is. The road, that's all there is to life. Whereas Augustine says that, yes, life is a journey, but we're all moving towards a definite home. But how does he deal with the tension between living life as it is now and hoping for rest and happiness in the life to come? Yeah, so for for Augustine, the, the road trip that he thinks explains the human condition is the the parable of the prodigal son, which I, th- I think is commonly and known enough that we could assume, right? right? The parable, yeah. the father, the son who says, basically says to his father, I wish you were dead. Could I please have my inheritance now? The father gives it to him. He runs off to a distant, distant country, blows it on wine, women, and booze, and is, is destitute, is living l- lower than the animals, and then kind of comes to himself and makes his way back to the father who gathers him up in in graceful welcome home and that's where he finds himself as well so for augustine that's that's the possibility that the human condition holds out and and what he would say is grace is this realization that i am not my own that a father is waiting to welcome me and in, and in some sense has assured me of that welcome but I, there's also this not yet dynamic of this mortal condition in which we find ourselves. The, the technical word he would talk about is what he calls eschatology, that there's this, there's this still this sense in which we are waiting for the kingdom to arrive in its fullness. So in the meantime, we are pilgrims. We are, he even sometimes says we are exiles. We, are, we know where we're going. We are assured of a home that will welcome us, but it's, we have many miles to go before we sleep. And so what does it look like to be hopeful on that journey? What does it look like, though, to be realistic about that journey? And it doesn't mean 
pretending everything is good. You know, like it, it means facing up to the brokenness and fallenness and lamentable aspects of this world and and how difficult it is, how difficult it is to stay between the ditches, so to speak. And we'll talk about some of these in specifics, but um, you're know, going back to the existentialist philosophers, you know, for me, and I think you talk, you've talked about this too, there's something about their philosophy of, you know, it's extreme rugged individualism, right? You make your own meaning. Yeah. It's up to you. It's all about courage, the courage to face the absurd, and it's attractive. But as you said, like, once you like try to like, okay, I'm going to find my own meaning, but it's like, oh man, this is exhausting. Yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't do it. But a lot of people don't want to like feel like they, they need, need to depend on someone, even a higher power, because it yeah. feels like, I don't know, emasculating or infantilizing. I mean, what do you think the, I mean, I don't know, there's some issue there that people want something, but they're afraid to take it. Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the most scandalous aspect of Augustine's vision is grace, <laughs> because grace at the, at the very bottom says, I can't do it on my own. That that this is impossible for me to accomplish. So, and and I get the offense of it, and I think it's especially offensive to those of us who live in a secular, you know, sort of late modern world, because the most sacrosanct value in our cultural moment, I think, is autonomy, is independence, and there's 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 ways in which that's maybe especially true for kind of guys, like there's a gendered way that that goes. But I think in general, also, there's just this sense that autonomy, independence, self-sufficiency is our religion. And Augustine just thinks you can't be human and not be dependent. Like you can't ever be fully human without owning up to your dependence, ultimately on God, but also your human dependence. And I think one way to explain the epidemic of of isolation and loneliness as our culture is actually as a mirror and effect of our prizing of autonomy and independence. We don't, we don't really know how to value community and friendship and dependence. Even though we have ways of being collectively together, they are not the same as recognizing the fact that I'm dependent on communities that have come before me, that are around me, and so on and so forth. So I think you're right. I think one of the reasons why existentialism took hold is it was it 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 confirmed this myth of autonomy. Augustine understands why we want to be ourselves. It's not, it's not a facing individuality. It's questioning individualism. And, and for Augustine, you could actually never find the fullness of yourself alone. So yeah, there's, I get why that's sort of scandalous. And yet I also think, I think our culture is discovering that we are not our best masters. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I think I'm the last person I want to trust with myself. And it, it's one of the reasons actually why I think, it, I don't know if you notice in the book, but recovery communities are, are constantly referred to as an analog of what we're talking about. And I think the way into recovery, the way out of addiction is to recognize the illusion of autonomy and independence. All right, there's a lot to unpack there. There's things. Sorry, yeah. No, yeah. There's, so let's, let's dig in. I'm going to parse this out a bit. So we can talk. You talk about uh, there's ideas of freedom in there. And then you also talk about yeah. identity or authenticity. Augustine and the existentialists had different takes on this. So let's talk with freedom. So this idea of this autonomous individual that makes their meaning, makes choices of life, that's an existentialist 
thing. But as you talk about in the book, the existentialist thought of freedom mainly is freedom from, from constraints. But you make the case that this, this focus on freedom from as freedom can actually ensnare us and make us less free. How so? Yeah. So, and, th- and this, I think, is one of the great gifts Augustine could give to us in terms of just like analyzing freedom for us. And I, by the way, I think this is really hyped up in specifically American contexts. So, yeah, we, we generally, when we use the word freedom, almost the only way we imagine freedom is what Isaiah Berlin called negative freedom. It's freedom from. It's, it's freedom understood as the absence of constraints. So nobody is pushing on me. Nobody is having, it's hands off freedom, and I get to choose what I want. Augustine thinks that's what he calls free free choice. And he actually thinks free choice is prone to its own sort of slavery and addiction, we might say today. Because if freedom is just the power and agency to choose to do whatever I want, my freedom is actually never directed or aimed or led or guided to my good, to some substantive vision of the good. Instead, I imagine I'm more free just to the extent that I multiply my options. But if I just multiply my options, what can also happen is sort of a paralysis. I mean, you know, the the trivial example of this is, you you know, uh, I go to the grocery store to buy toothpaste and there's 17,000 kinds of toothpaste. Where do I even start? And it's like, Fine, I'm going home. I don't even know where to begin. There, there's a there's a deep existential version of this, which is how would I even know what to choose? But then secondly, if there's no real specification of what I ought to choose, and I just start sort of trying things out, what can happen is there what looks like free choice can also become the beginning of my own addiction and enslavement to the thing. So Augustine has this analysis in Book 8 of the Confessions where he says, oh, well, I start by thinking, I'm going to choose to do this, and I think that this will make me happy. And then after a little while, I have to do this to have any sort of feeling of happiness. And before long, doing this actually no longer makes me happy, And yet I can't not do it because now I'm just trying to sort of maintain some base level of high, so to speak, that I was experiencing. It's exactly the dynamics of addiction. So for Augustine, that's negative freedom, and and it doesn't go well. The story does not turn out well. Positive freedom, freedom for, is now when my agency, my power to choose, is enlivened and empowered precisely because it is directed towards some good, some vision of what the good life is. And so now it's empowering me to pursue and chase something that is for my good. And what that means is Augustine can imagine guardrails and scaffolding being gifts to me. Now they're not constraints. They're not restraints. They're not shutting down my options. They're guardrails that are channeling me towards my own good. And that doesn't mean I'm not free. It actually, for Augustine, that's what it's most free. And what's the relationship for Augustine between these guardrails and grace? The grace, the guardrails would be a manifestation of grace. I I would also say for, for Augustine, grace is also this 
infusion of a revivified capacity in my will. Do you know what I mean? Like basically I need a resurrected will and power of choice to choose well. But then within that, if God gives me good guardrails, those are also a means of grace because they are channeling me in the right direction. I'm trying to think of like another analog. Let's let's just think out loud for a sec. Imagine somebody has been imprisoned for 20 years and you come and you throw open the door and say, you're free. There's two very different ways to do that. You throw open the door, say you're free, go ahead, you can do whatever you want. Or you can say, you're free, let me give you... Let me give you some direction. Let me give you an aspiration. Let me give you the power of living into a specified way of life. Which person is most likely to actually experience agency and empowerment? It's going to be the second because they've they've lived a life that is directed towards something and has been made possible precisely because somebody has actually narrowed the options, but given them the power and direction to chase what is for their own benefit. The other person has no constraints, but also has no direction. No, that's good. So that's interesting. So you, you use the word agency, not autonomy. So Augustine's more focused on agency, not so much autonomy. Yes, this this could be really important, actually. So if if Augustine is critical of autonomy... What what we mean is he's critical of this notion that I am a law unto myself, right? That I am self-sufficient. The opposite of that, or the alternative to that, however, is not being an automaton, right? Or a robot or something. It's actually being given truly revivified, re-energized agency so that I am becoming myself. I'm not just becoming a cookie cutter of what God stamps out. I actually am being kind of resurrected, as it were, to become myself. And when when I choose these good things, it's me that's choosing, but I'm able to choose because of the infusion of grace. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. With Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials using the finest materials without the traditional markups. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. So they're radically transparent about their real costs in every step in their process, from the materials they use, the ethical factories they work with. Not to mention, essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Versatile, simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. My number one favorite item from Everlane is their peak polo shirt. Perfectly fitted. I like the fit on it. It's a little more athletic. The fabric's super comfortable. The other item I like is their raincoat. I like it because it's, it's simple, no frills, just looks really sharp. And it's made from recycled water bottles, so it's good for the environment as well. Right now, you can check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash manliness. Plus, you'll get free shipping on your first order when you use that URL. That's everlane.com slash manliness. One more time, everlane.com slash manliness. Check out the polo shirt and also the raincoat. Also by The Strenuous Life. The Strenuous Life is an online platform that we created to help you put into action all the things we've been talking about in the Art of Manliness podcast for the past, whatever, eight years now. We've done that by creating 50 different badges based around 50 different skills like wilderness survival, personal finance, got a rucking badge, we got a barbell badge, and we provide weekly challenges and... We also provide accountability for your physical fitness on a daily basis and doing a good deed, thinking outside of yourself. Our next enrollment is the week of December 30th. So it's just in a few weeks. If you want to be one of the first to know when enrollment opens up, head over to strenuouslife.co, get your email on our waiting list, and then we'll send an email out when enrollment opens up. Strenuouslife.co, hope to see you in the enrollment in January. 
also by Burrow. As the weather gets chillier, a lot of us are starting to crave the cozy night in. Make the most of your homebody time with a new Burrow couch. Burrow sofas are customizable. You can pick your fabric color, leg finish, armrest style, and length. You can even add a chase lounge or ottoman or both if you want to do that. Burrow's durable fabric is naturally scratch and stain resistant and each sofa comes with a built-in USB charger, which is pretty cool. They're easy to move around, easy to set up. You can do it all yourself in just a few minutes and you can add or remove seats as needed. And Burrow offers more than just sofas. They've just launched a collection of functional, affordable rugs and coffee tables, which is nice because it's hard to find a good rug or coffee table that matches the sofa you've purchased. What I also like about the Burrow, it's got a good look to it. It's got kind of that mid-century madman vibe to it, which is a, it's a look I like. It's very classy and timeless. I get $75 off a new sofa and free one-week shipping at burrow.com slash manliness. That's burrow.com slash manliness, B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash manliness for $75 off a new Burrow sofa. Check it out. Check out the Nomad sofa, which is the one that I got. It looks really nice. And now back to the show. Well, let's hit on, let's kind of dig into this idea of grace, because I think particularly in America, when people, it's such a loaded word, um, graces, because I think mm. um, from mm. an evangelical, because I think when most people hear grace, they think of like an evangelical Protestant perspective. You know, you you hear you hear the altar call, you say the sinner's prayer, then once saved, always saved. Uh, but it yeah. doesn't seem like that's how Augustine thought of it, or did he? I think he he's just working with a fundamentally different metaphor, as it were. So for what 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 Augustine means when he's talking about grace is the 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 root term of grace is gift. For Augustine, all of creation is gift all the way down. Do you know what I mean? Like all of creation doesn't have to be, so it's given. Everything I have in a way is has been given to me. It's been gifted, so I'm I'm graced. But then what he also thinks is if you left me to my own devices as a prodigal, I left to my own devices am going to always and only look for love in all the wrong places. That's that's the, the being without grace for Augustine means being left to my own devices and left to my own devices. I'm going to try to satisfy what is an infinite hunger with all kinds of finite things. I can't dig myself out of that hole. I can't undo that bent of my heart. What I need is the gift of God's renewal and reorientation of my hungers so that I am looking for satisfaction in the right places, if, if that makes sense. Grace is really about a gifted sense of agency so that now I choose well. For Augustine, the, the, the really, really important thing is the opposite of grace is autonomy and independence and self-sufficiency, which is imagining that you can sort of earn your way out. And Augustine thinks that's also just going to be always doomed to disappointment and frustration. And and again, I think that's the part that really, by, by the way, there's all kinds of religious people. There's all kinds of people who call themselves Christians who actually at the end of the day are very offended by grace because they still think it's about, per, about performance. And, and Augustine, when Augustine got in some really heated controversies in his time, one group that he, he, he got quite polemical with were the Pelagians. And the reason was, is because the Pelagians kept saying, oh, well, there's a goodness in us so that we can do this on our own. And Augustine just reacted so viscerally to that. And and I think that's true. I mean, it's exactly one of the reasons why I think if you want a picture of what it looks like 
for Augustine, look at the experience of addicts and recovery. And, you know, a key part of the uh, recovery journey is recognizing one's dependence on a higher power and all the debts one owes to others. And so it, it, what it does is that whole process and journey disabuses us of our self-sufficiency. So yeah, the, so there's like, here's the, with, with freedom, there's an existential take on freedom, which is freedom from autonomy. You make your choices. It's all on you. Augustine say, no, it's freedom to, we have to depend on someone if we really want to be free. Yes. Okay. And, and then you really are free. I mean, you really, you're, you're not just like a robot. It, now you can become you. Uh, okay. So becoming who you are. Right. This is uh, this is an existential thing. Very much. And, and you say that Augustine has his idea of you become who you are by submitting. The existentialist would say no. You become. You have to create yourself. Yeah. And that's that's the authentic. So this this idea of authenticity. What is like? What did the existentialist think it meant to be authentic? Yeah. So for for the for the existentialists, really the fundamental criterion of authenticity. Well, maybe there's a couple aspects of it, but let, let's say this. To be authentic for the existentialist is to resist conformity to the masses, to intentionally choose who you will be, and to forge that identity for yourself, right? Does that make sense? So there's there's a sense in which to be authentic is to not go with the flow, not default to what everybody else is doing, not mimic and imitate the they, as, as Heidegger called it, to then be resolute in your intentionality in choosing to be somebody unique and individual. And that means kind of forging your own identity. And so it meant, you know, disregarding or you know, rejecting like people. Oh yeah. So there's right. There's a, there's a, so there's a deep individualism about this to the extent that yeah, other people, Heidegger and Sartre in particular and Camus to a large degree do not have much of a constructive account of how people contribute to my authenticity. Instead, what you get is an overwhelming sense of how others make me inauthentic, that they they rob me of my authenticity. So Sartre, of course, famously in, in this play, Hell is Other People. For, for Heidegger, the portrayal of the influence of others on my life is always and almost exclusively negative as leading me to conformity and therefore losing myself. When I when I just mimic and imitate the mass, the masses, I am losing my authentic individuality. So you can also understand why I think this philosophy found a pretty unique home in American popular culture. I mean it's it's almost like the philosophy of the Western, even though it was it was hatched in French cafes. So Augustine would would say his response to the idea of authenticity or becoming who you are is you need people. And he would say, he would concede, yes, people can have a bad influence on you. Yeah. He even talks about in his confessions, uh, you know, the whole thing that started, that kickstarted his conversion was he like stole a pear. Yeah. And he said, well, it was because I was with this gang. Yes. And they were telling me I should do it to be cool. And he did it. Yes. But he also says, no, but people can also help me become who I'm supposed to be. 
Yeah. So I, I think Augustine, th- this is why I still think there's a deep resonance. I, I still want to locate Augustine in an existentialist tradition because he he agrees with this notion of looking for authenticity. I also think he agrees that authenticity requires intentionality on our part. That is, if I do just sort of, you know, go through life on autopilot and and just conform to what everybody else is doing, that is not going to be authenticity. The difference between Augustine and, say, Heidegger and Sartre and Camus is that for for Augustine, well, two things. There is a normative vision of how to be human. Do you know what I mean? Like, so for, for Augustine, there is a call on us, but the call on us is coming from the one who made us. And so there's a there's a normative, substantive vision of what it looks like to live into the fullness of being human. It's not just something I make up. That's Aristotelian, right? It's like and it's also very Aristotelian, deeply Aristotelian, yeah. exactly. But then the other part of it that that distinguishes Augustine from the 20th century existentialists is he does have an account of how others contribute to my finding myself and answering that call. And I think the beauty of, right, if, if you think of Augustine's confessions, his quote-unquote fall is chapter two, where he steals the fruit from the tree, ding, 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 Genesis chapter three. The, the, the parallel to that is in book eight, where he's back in a garden, and this is his conversion, but in fact, that entire scene is embedded in a web of friendships and community and people who meet him and actually, to be honest, love him enough to to hold up to him visions of how to be human that they think he's called to live towards. And so you see him redeem friendship and, and to realize in the same way that in book two, when he you know, falls into his sin, so to speak, when he falls, he says, alone, I would not have done it. But by the time you get to book eight, and for the rest of his life, he will also say, I could not be happy without friends. And, and when Augustine says happy, he doesn't just mean, oh, like cheery or having a good day. What he means is having meaning in my life. I could not have meaning in my, I could not be who I am called to be without friends. And I think that sense of, the authentic self as actually one who is located as a node in a web of relationships is so crucial to thinking about what healthy humanity looks like. And I mean, another sort of analogy you can make that it's like life's a play, right? Shakespeare. And once you find that role that you're supposed to be a part of it, it fits you, it feels good, but like there's other people there as well with you. Like you, you don't, you can't know who you are or what your role is without other people telling you about it. Right, exactly. Another way I play on it in the book On the Road with St. Augustine is, you know, even if the existentialists held up, you know, the freedom of the open road as the way to go find yourself, of course, as soon as you're driving on a road, you're already following somebody. Right, there's you're you're not blazing a trail; you're following a path. So the the question isn't probably whether you are with people, it's who you are with and where they are headed. And that's the question to ask ourselves. Well, also, you know, in the book, a lot of these road movies, they're buddy movies. It's like, hey, I got to go find myself. Come along yes. with me. Yes. Yeah. It's, I think it's a very intriguing paradox in a way. All right. So authenticity, his response to that was you have to be, embed yourself with other people and accept grace. 
But then he also deals with these other issues of anxiety that cause anxiety. And one of them that he hits hard because he had to struggle with this for his early adult life was the restlessness that an anxiety that ambition can cause. Mm. Mm-hmm. Tell us about Augustine's struggle with ambition. Yeah. So just a step back to frame it a little bit. So a, a, a lot of what Augustine analyzes are the human propensity, as I said before, look to look for love in all the wrong places. That is the human propensity to try to satisfy what is an inbuilt infinite craving by merely settling for finite things. And he thinks there's all kinds of examples of that. That It can be power, it can be sex, it could be education, it could be, you know, there's all kinds of things that we think will be the thing that helps us achieve what will ultimately make us happy. And he thinks if you frame any of these things in that way, you're probably going to be, you are doomed for, for disappointment. When So when he's thinking about ambition, He's kind of asking, you know, what do I want when I want to lead? What do I want when I want to win? And what's interesting is Augustine, in his early life, so before he's a Christian, in his early life, he's a very ambitious young man. He's trying to climb the ladders of both sort of education and the university, but also of political power. He, he eventually climbs from the, the margins and the provinces of the empire in Africa to a post in Rome, and then eventually makes it to be a part of the imperial palace. He's, he's almost like, you know, the White House uh, speechwriter kind of thing. And what, what's intriguing is Augustine kept imagining that he would be satisfied if he finally achieved everything he aspired for. And really, the opening and beginning of what would ultimately turn out to be his conversion wasn't failure, it was success. It was actually achieving everything he was hoping for, getting to the very top of the mountain, and then sitting down and looking around and thinking, really? That, this is it? I was kind of hoping for more. you know." And I think a lot of us know that sort of postpartum depression that sets in after you've already achieved everything that you've hoped for. And for Augustine, that was sort of a gateway into asking, man, what am I hoping for? What I'm looking for? But but then what really intrigues me, I guess, is that even after his conversion, when Augustine goes on to become a priest and then ultimately a bishop and a very influential bishop, he's still very honest that he struggles with ambition. And what he means is he's kind of a sucker for praise like he, he who who doesn't love to be told augustine you are awesome i can't believe you know like he's he's still so susceptible to trying to find ultimate happiness in what other people think of them and the the reason why i love his honesty about that is augustine says well look i think i i just need to realize this is probably always going to be a demon that plagues me one way of course to avoid you know, praise and adulation is to suck at what you do. And uh, and Augustine, well, I guess that would solve my problem. But of course it wouldn't because you would still want it. So instead, Augustine, it, that's why he confesses. He says, you know, am I doing this for God or am I doing this for me? To which his answer is yes, right? He, he knows <laughs> he's always, he's always going to be sort of divided in that regard. And he knows that being honest before God that he still struggles with this is part of that grace that that he's living into, and so um, it's it's like somebody who writes a book, and 
is hoping and wants to hear good reviews, but it's a book about humility, right? So you're, it's you, you, so does that mean you never want to write a successful book on humility? I don't think so, but it's, it's what are you looking for in that and how much, how much expectation and hope are you putting in that? Well, I thought that was interesting too, you know, instead of, as you say, Augustine's answer isn't like, don't be less ambitious. Like, don't don't okay. play it small with your life. Exactly. You would say, okay, God's given you gifts through grace. You have to use those or else you're a, a lazy and slothful servant, right? As the yes. Talents parable says. But he says, yeah, you have to be careful with, are you making sure you're using that ambition for the right reasons? Yes. And, and to then also be... So you keep having these, you know, reality checks with yourself. You keep taking sort of internal audits of your aspiration and ambition. You st- you keep venturing out. And then also just realize God gives us the practice of confession to say, you know what? I also kind of really liked it when so-and-so said that, you know, like that really sort of fueled something in me. And I, I think honesty about those things is so much better than false humility. I, I think false humility is a terrible idol in Christian communities in particular, because actually false humility is the mask of pride. And I I think we do well to kind of break those idols. Also, no humble bragging. No humble bragging, exactly. Don't do the humble bragging. Yes, yes. So let's talk about this pursuit of knowledge information that also caused restlessness that he uh, dealt with, Augustine did. How does our modern life encourage us to restlessly pursue knowledge and information? How does that manifest itself in our world? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I do think it's a feature of late modern culture that being in the know is sort of one of the ways that we feel we are valued. And so now, in some ways, this is there's a long legacy of this of enlightenment saying we're going to think our way towards utopia. Uh, on a more mundane level, it's just living in an information age where you know to be up on things, to be enlightened, to know what's going on, and to not feel ignorant is one of the badges that we wear to be valued by other people. So I think it's 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 no mistake that we are still a people who are susceptible to imagining that being smart is being important or being in the know is how I will get noticed. Yeah. You taught, you, you made a reference to uh, like a Portlandia sketch, like it's over, but there's another one too, where they did like, it's like, did you read it? Where they just like, they're just like competing (laughs) over each other. Did they read all these obscure hip things? Yes. Yes. And, And interestingly, we don't, um, we also don't like people to tell us things that we already know, or we don't like to be told things that we don't know, right? So, because then it means we're not up to speed and therefore we must not be important. So how did Augustine, did he have this problem? And if so, well, what was his I, response? I think that Augustine struggled with this in a way that parallels, I think, some contemporary struggles. Let me put it this way. It's interesting how ancient is the idea that education is the way to 
significance, right? So that, that, and I think this is especially, remember, Augustine's sort of living in the provinces on the margins of the empire, and the way you are going to climb into centers of power is by enlightenment and education. And so he's, what happens there is now you are kind of idolizing and using education to achieve something other than actually understanding yourself in the world is because it's a weapon and a, that you want to wield so that you can get access. You know, it's really about a climbing into an insider space. And I still think that's, uh, you know, somebody who teaches at the university, I, that's definitely the way a lot of people still think of education. They're not really super interested in wisdom. They're interested in the credentialing that gets them access to centers of power and influence. And Augustine was, was very susceptible to that. Yeah, he became a Manichaean. He did, yeah. So the interesting, the Manichaeans were this crazy religious sect at the time that it's very, very hard for us to imagine ourselves into. They were kind of Gnostic. They put a lot of weight on astrology and reading the stars. But because of that, stargazing dynamic, they actually thought they were the scientists of the day. They thought they were the rationalists of the day. And when Augustine was kind of lured into or drawn to the Manichaeans, it was precisely like those people who imagine by allying themselves with quote-unquote science, they are showing their independence and enlightenment and therefore scoff at anyone who would be so benighted and deluded as to believe something. And what Augustine realized, this he spent about 10 years actually with the Manichaeans, and what he realized is, you know, it turns out in every community, people are believing something at the end of the day. You know, like there's, there was still, once he got to peer behind the curtain, he sort of saw through this myth of enlightenment and rationality and realized that it was pegged on its own kind of confessional belief and not one that he thought stood up to scrutiny. And I, I, I think it's interesting. Augustine says, you can't not believe. There, there is no human standpoint that isn't predicated on some kind of fundamental trust in a story, in a community, in a, a myth about the world. Myth not in the sense of a, a fable, but in the sense of an orienting story about the world. And Augustine just thought at the end of the day, Christianity had the most comprehensive story to make sense of his experience. Well, sort of an analog, a modern analog of this idea, you have some sort of secret information or secret knowledge and you scoff at other people, the outsiders. You see this all the time on internet culture, right? Like the vegans or the CrossFitters or the keto people or the (laughs) even like evolutionary psychology. I I know everything about human nature and this is, I can explain everything. Augustine would be like, I've seen that before. And and Augustine thinks it's just another manifestation of our hubris. Now that's not, of course, that's not to give comfort to ignorance or it's not to, you know, praise irrationality. It's just to recognize that reason itself operates on the basis of trust. And there's, there's no standpoint in which people aren't dependent. It's actually, it's, it's kind of the epistemological equivalent of what we were talking about earlier in terms of a, of a dependence that we all have. This that we all believe in something. This reminds me. I'm, yeah. I'm reading this book about uh, Kierkegaard and Plato. It's by mm. Jacob Howland and sort of his connection, like Kierkegaard's you know connection to Socrates. But he makes this interesting point about uh, philosophy begins with doubt. But he says in order for there to be doubt, you have to believe in something first. Yeah, yeah. No, there's another line in Kierkegaard where 
I, um, I think it's in his journals where he says it's faith that brought doubt into the world. They they are kind of sisters. They're companions. They and and Augustine. Some people have this picture of Augustine as like this utter dogmatist, but I actually think I try to show from his sermons, for example, that he actually he gives room for people to be honest about their doubts. He just always counsels them: don't treat your doubts as certainties. Doubt your and doubts. I think that's always. Yeah, doubt your doubts, and I, I think especially that's a that's wise counsel maybe for people who have emerged from fundamentalist communities of whatever stripe, and where they weren't allowed to doubt anything, and then sort of swing to the other side and are equally indubitable about their new rational enlightenment. And I, whereas I, Augustine thinks, oh, I think probably the truth is somewhere between those two poles. So I guess the the answer to this. This restlessness that this desire for knowledge is like have some intellectual humility and, yeah. and not even not think that intellectual knowledge will give you meaning. Like I think in the in the, your book, uh, You Are What You Love, you talk about the difference between like head knowledge and like creature knowledge. Like Augustine would say, like recognize the creatureliness in you, that like you need love, you need social relationships. Like that's what gives life meaning. Yes. And I mean, w- without denigrating right. intellectual pursuits either. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like Augustine is literally one of the intellectual giants of the West. But what I love then is somebody who is so brilliant and so intellectually astute also recognizes the limits of what he's able to know. I I, I think we could I think our world could use more people who are willing to live into and recognize the limits of what they know. And also to recognize that mystery is its own profundity. You know, there's um, mystery isn't just a puzzle to be solved. It's actually a sense that there is, there is an overwhelming kind of truth that I'll never comprehend. Let's talk about another thing that causes this restlessness, and that's death. Now, death was something the existentialists took very seriously because, like, once you die, like you cease to exist. So it's true. And Heidegger thought, you know, the most sort of fundamental posture of the self design, as he called it, was being towards death. Like that was, that was the real sort of wake up call. So how did they handle, I mean, the existential, how did they handle the anxiety that death could call? Was it just like accept it and just like live life to the fullest today? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's varying versions of that for, for Heidegger, death was like facing up to, the utter singularity of one's death was supposed to be this, yeah, this 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 resolving catalyst, so that I had to face up: who am I, and what am I going to do? For it's a little bit. I think it's you could say it's something similar in Camus, in in the sense that there's no expectation of immortality for Camus, which is why then we have to labor for justice here and now. That was a very, very important theme for Camus. Like, if there's going to be justice, it's going to be because humans in their finite lifetimes are are laboring for it. And again, I sort of admire that about Camus, because you could also imagine another take, which is saying, there's nothing after, so let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Whereas, Whereas Camus thought it sort of heightened our moral responsibility to one another. And then what was Augustine's response? So Augustine's response is he he just wants to take seriously that the fear of death tells us something about a human aspiration, right? So the, the, the flip side of every fear 
is a hunger or a hope. And, and the fact that it seems difficult to efface and erase the fear of death, Augustine says, let's listen to that and say, isn't that a sign that we are hoping and longing for something more, for, for a kind of immortality? And of course, that's why he thinks at the heart of Christianity was this most astounding event, which was the resurrection of the dead. And so, um, interesting, you, you mentioned Plato earlier. Uh, the young Augustine probably thought, oh, the best we could hope for is the immortality of the soul. It's only actually when he matures into Christianity that he sees, oh, no, actually, Christianity doesn't just hold out the immortality of the soul. It's talking about the resurrection of the body, which means the hope we have here is actually for a new heaven and a new earth, right? Like it's, um, it's, a, it's the hope, our cosmic hope isn't just a hope for a kind of disembodied existence. It's, it's for God reconciling all things and gathering up all of the goods of creation as well. So it's a very, I, th- I think it's an ultimately a humanistic vision in the sense that it honors all the aspects of being human. Well, Jamie, this has been a great conversation. I, I mean, this book, I uh, hope this sort of whetted people's appetite to go read The Confessions. It's, I, think it's a re- I think it's a really readable book, even though it was written in the fourth century. Yeah, especially if you read it in a decent contemporary translation. Any ones that you recommend? I, I recommend Sarah Rudin's new translation in the Modern Library is very good. And uh, Henry Chadwick's, which is a nice, cheap Oxford paperback. Both of those are excellent. Chadwick's has some great footnotes for people who are unfamiliar with uh, the ancient context. And Jamie, where can people go to learn more about your book, On the Road with St. Augustine? JamesKASmith.com is probably the best place to start. All right. Jamie Smith, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Great to talk to you again. Thanks so much. My guest is James K.A. Smith. He is the author of the book, On the Road to St. Augustine. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at his website, jameskasmith.com. Also, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Augustine, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles about personal finance, philosophy, physical fitness, how to be a better husband, better father. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only to listen to the AWIN podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.